When Andrew Reamer reviewed Tim Boney Hades' Good Living Street in the Sydney Morning Herald earlier this year, he concluded in a reference to Gustav Klimt's portrait of Hermina Gallia, like so many things Viennese, Klimt's picture seems to me to teeter on the edge of kitsch. I would substantially broaden the scope of Dr. Reamer's observation to say most art from any culture at any time teeters on that edge. The trends, in inverted commas, the trends and the issues arise as one tendency or the other dominates, kitsch or asceticism. And that is true, I think, whether we consider music, literature or architecture as well as art. Is Gaudí's Sagrada Familia Basilica kitsch or simply an admirable freedom of expression? Is the music of the flower maidens kitsch in Wagner's Parsifal? Or is it kitsch when Bach sets such phrases as wept bitterly or a flogging so floridly and expressively in his great passions? Are these legitimate artistic metaphors or rather lapses into what we disparagingly call kitsch? How garish or sentimental can human expression become? before we deplore or reject it with that word kitsch. And why do we need a German word? It was coined in Munich in the latter part of the 19th century from the dialect word kitchen, which meant to smear something on. It would be used in a phrase such as schlammkitchen, to scrape up or smear mud or sludge. Very detached critical term, you can see. And it probably does convey the meaning a little more colourfully than either tacky or tawdry would in English. Thinking this way, therefore, I want to characterise modernism, which may actually be something different from modernity, in quite a particular manner. It is not simply being of any present time rather than of a past time. Indeed, all art was exactly that before we began to make a commodity of it, to overvalue the old and give it a mercantile value. No artist wants to be the same as everyone else, but originality is a slippery concept, while modernism connotes more, I think, than contemporary or original. And nor do I think that Peter Gay, in his book on modernism, characterised it at all adequately when he wrote that modernists sought to confront conventional sensibilities and showed a commitment to principled self-scrutiny. All artists have those traits, at least all artists since uh, the Reformation. What is true is that what we consider to be modernism in visual art arose at a remarkable time. By 1900, the fundamental pillars of scientific medicine were in place and clinical practice was following its lead. In Vienna, for example, Karl Landsteiner was uncovering the secrets of blood groups, which soon permitted the success of transfusions. And these, be it noted, together with anesthesia, permitted the success, the, the success uh, are they the foundations of modern surgery? The Austrian Erich Schermach was rediscovering Mendel's laws of genetics, while Corrins in Germany and de Vries in Holland were doing just the same thing. In England, Hopkins discovered tryptophan, the first essential amino acid, 
and the science of modern nutrition was underway. Max Planck discovered the quantal nature of energy transmission, and so modern physics was born. Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams in 1900, and The Psychopathology of Everyday Life would appear in 1901. Now, while I'm inclined to believe that the 20th century did not really begin until the outbreak of World War I, it is clear that much of the panoply of the modern world had been created by 1900, and Vienna was at the centre of it. Even the Catholic Church was not immune to this social movement. Pope Leo XIII was working to temper the hostility of that secular and sacred monolith towards the modern world, which not long before at the First Vatican Council of 1870, had engaged in the solipsistic and archaic folly of the Declaration of Papal Infallibility. But despite the modernity, Vienna too had its own atavistic and anti-intellectual evil, enduring anti-Semitism. So if there were a Viennese dress rehearsal, it was not the only stage on which modernism was being tried out. From this point, I must focus specifically on my musical brief. Going back to what I implied at the very beginning, the fundamental trait of modernism is that it seeks to eschew gratuitous, distracting, and tasteless decoration. It seeks to refine the expression of the artistic aspiration to its essence. It may nonetheless be extremely complex if that is the nature of the artistic result which the composer seeks. Further, if I can briefly set up a quite false dilemma, it may aim for a serious intellectual outcome in preference to a strong emotional one. Putting all this another way, emotionalism, sorry, uh, uh, modernism was a response, a corrective to the excesses of romanticism. What then are those excesses and what are the best responses? This problem was, I think, most profoundly expressed by Friedrich Nietzsche in The Birth of Tragedy in 1872, not long before the epoch which we are considering. The continuous development of art is bound up with the Apollonian and Dionysian duality. For the most part, these different tendencies are openly at variance, he wrote. When reflecting on Apollo, he referred to that measured restraint, that freedom from the wilder emotions, that calm, whereas the word which he tended to use about the Dionysiac was intoxication, even paroxysms of intoxication. The Apollonian and the Dionysian are, in his words, artistic energies which burst forth from nature herself. And towards the end of this remarkable book, he wrote that these two artistic drives must unfold their powers in strict proportion. This is an elegant and philosophical way of insisting that in every work of art, the creator must strive to balance the wild and the impetuous, the romantic if you like, with the reflective and the resolved, or the classical. And that really was the basis of the disputes between the Viennese musical classicists of the last decades of the 19th century, Brahms and the critic Hanslick in particular on one side, against Wagner and such supporters as Hugo Wolf and Mahler especially Mahler, with his advocacy of what he called the new symphony. To him, the real Gesamtkunstwerk, the complete work of art. 
the term which Wagner liked to apply to his operas, because to Mahler, conveniently forgetting that Franz Liszt was the real father of that symphonic concept, the symphony should express the whole world, which in a sense was how the Austrians saw their empire. Some people like to consider Mahler a modernist. To me, he was nothing of the sort. He was, in a real sense, the culmin culmination of the Dionysiac excesses of Romanticism. And that is why his last completed symphony, his ninth, is so authentically tragic. Not because when he wrote it in 1908-1909, he had serious premonitions of his death a few years later. Rather, it is, I believe, that he had a real sense that the civilized world as he knew and experienced it, the polychrome world of Romanticism, was inexorably drawing to its own end. So what was the response of composers to the emergence of the transforming world of science and the other arts as it was becoming increasingly apparent that Romanticism was a spent force? Well, inevitably, some composers, either because of the power of their training or the lack of curiosity in their personalities, continued to be romantic. Others saw three different paths. Some, such as Shumanovsky, Bartok, as we heard from Will's comment earlier, and Vaughan Williams, turned to the folk music of their native countries as a means of revitalizing concert music. The other two solutions were essentially Apollonian though they were often seen to be in philosophical conflict. One was neoclassicism and the other was modernism. The neoclassicists, at the very least instinctually recognising the force of Nietzsche's argument, decided that the burden of romanticism could best be exorcised by a frank return to the philosophy and practice <coughs> of the era of the great Viennese classics, notably Mozart, Haydn and Beethoven. The first exponent of the style was Richard Strauss. He was not really Viennese, you might say, but he was Bavarian, which is almost the same as, thing as saying he was Austrian. <coughs> there is still a dream of a great transalpine federation of Bayern, Austria, and South Tyrol. <coughs> but he was, from 1919, co-director co of the Staatsoper in Vienna, a co-founder of the Salzburg Festival, had a Viennese daughter-in-law, and became an Austrian citizen. And that first neoclassical work was the initial version of the opera Ariadne of Naxos, quite different from the version we know today, which was written as the final act of a performance of Molière's Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme in Stuttgart in 1912. Strauss had previously flirted with modernism, notably in Electra and Zalame, which was actually banned in Vienna. And its but its closing scene really declared him to be what I call a modern romantic. However, his neoclassical experiment in that first version of Ariadne had certainly been the ideal style for the melange which von Hofmannsthal had created for him. But the style remained principally a dalliance for him until the concerto, concerti of the 1940s. More opportunistically, Stravinsky, the time traveller, as uh, Constant Lambert called him in his wonderful book, Music Ho, adopted this style later and is commonly given the credit for it. He does not deserve it. However, it does not seem to me, neoclassicism does not seem to me to be an entirely satisfaction to the Nietzschean dilemma. 
It's like painting moustaches on old masters, as Lambert put it. And its proponents were ambivalent about it, and the results, to me at least, almost always sound false, as in Stravinsky's opera The Rake's Progress. But it is remarkable that what I consider the first real piece of modernism, Arnold Schoenberg's melodrama Pierre Lunaire, had its premiere only nine days before Ariadne, making October 1912 a crucial date for two of those three contending strands of 20th century music. Its tone of parody, mocking, cabaret, and sinister expressionism is remarkable in the light of what had been happening in Schoenberg's life in the two years before he wrote it. First, in 1908, his wife, Matilda Zemlinski, had had an affair with the painter Richard Gerstel, from whom she had been having lessons. When she decided to return to Schoenberg, Gerstel committed suicide. I would say a grand romantic rather than a modernist act. <coughs> Second, in May 1911, Mahler, whom Schoenberg admired enormously and who had supported Schoenberg with money and advocacy, died of the complications of endocarditis. Thirdly, shortly before that, Richard Strauss, whom Schoenberg had considered another supporter, despite several refusals to perform his music, wrote to Mahler's widow, Alma, and said, the only person who can help Paul Schoenberg now is a psychiatrist. I think that he'd do better to shovel snow instead of scribbling on music paper. Whatever the influence of those deeply traumatic experience, what is more important is how significant classical forms are in the modernist Pierrot. I'm going to play number 18, Der Mondfleck, the Moonfleck, uh, and I'll put the <coughs> text up there. When you hear the music, it will not strike you as classical at all. I'm confident of that. Yet it is highly contrapuntal with three thematic lines. The voice part, in what's commonly uh, called uh, Sprechgesang, but that's not right. Schoenberg wrote it for eine Sprechstimme, for a speaking voice. The, the voice part is not replicated, but the piccolo, the woodwind, piccolo and clarinet play their melodic theme in canon. And the viola and cello do the same with their rhythmic motif. Even more complex, but traditional, is the fact that in the middle of this 19-bar song, those two canons turn on their axes and are then repeated backwards, the second part a mirror image of the first, a palindrome, in other words. Plainly, it is a sincere tribute to Johann Sebastian Bach, notably to his Art of the Fugue. And in that sense, it is surely as neoclassical a piece as it is indisputably modernist. The difference, therefore, between these two anti-romantic Apollonian styles is that neoclassicism simply sounds like its classical models rather than becomes them. It is like a suit, which can be put on or taken off. By contrast with Schoenberg's modernism, those classical forms are integral. The music does not aspire to seem what it is not. Now, despite what I've just said, we must not lose sight of the fact that like that, like their performers and listeners, composers remain human beings, irrespective of the so-called schools to which they belong. I mentioned the composers who draw on folk song, but nobody could deny Bartok's modernism on that ground. 
I mentioned Strauss's flirtation with modernism and neoclassicism. The modernism of Electra, for example, akin to Klimt's, I'd say, is the coloration which he gives to his score. But I asserted that he really remained a romantic. Schoenberg is renowned as the archetypical modernist, but his strong affinity to Jewish culture is too often ignored. And he could also adopt an overtly neoclassical style when he chose, though, as in a piece called Concerto for String Quartet and Orchestra, that was not always a successful move. Schoenberg's attitude to Vienna, the city of his birth, and his musical heritage was also equivocal. On the one hand, he once wrote to Alban Berg about his detestation of Vienna, in part because of its obdurate musical conservatism as well as for its enduring anti-Semitism. Yet on the other, with his affectionate chamber music version of the Emperor Waltz, he could show his affection for that city's enduring musical traditions to the extent that he made Johann Strauss the Younger sound like Schubert. The truth is that it is exceedingly difficult for anyone to escape the manifold cultural and intellectual influences which bear upon us. As Roy the teacher says at the conclusion of Patrick White's play, The Season at Sarsaparilla, you can't shed your skin even if it itches like hell. Mahler, of course, poured all of his own emotional turmoil into his music. Schoenberg, seeing the modern artist as necessarily an outsider, treated such matters more abstractly and philosophically. For Mahler, as I said, the symphony should reflect and embrace the whole world. And in that idea, at least, if not really in his musical language, he was a modernist. A crucial way in which modernists changed art was their in their determination that anything in the world is a fit subject for art, as we see in literature. From Joyce, a day's peregrination around Dublin. From Proust, an unremitting, unremitting reflection on an aesthete's personal world. For Musil, a man without qualities. In art, consider the work of Picasso or Georg Gross, for example. And finally, think of the great 19th century novels and those, such as Patrick White's, which have shared their aspiration into the 20th century. So Vienna in 1900 was not conducting a dress rehearsal at all. The artists were simply trying to be true to themselves and their era. But <clears throat> having arisen at the beginning of the savage 20th century, during which there was Dionysiac wildness and slaughter beyond previous imagination, modernism in due time provided us with an appropriate moral remedy. That modernist Apollonian scholar Theodore Adorno grossly misunderstood this when in 1955 he wrote, to write a poem after Auschwitz is barbaric. On the contrary, after all of the Dionysiac cruelty which that concentration camp symbolizes, the Apollonian modernists would assert that it is now more than ever necessary to write poetry and create art of all kinds. As the Piero text in one of the other songs reminds us, Heilige Kreuzer sind diverse, dran die Dichter stumm verbluten. Holy crosses are the verses on which poets silently bleed to death. Is this romanticism or modernism? That question is perhaps best dealt with by a remark of Egon Schiele, art always remains the same. 
art. So there is no new art. There are new artists.